0: Need something original and affordable for Mother's Day? Etsy has it. Shop until May 12th for up to 30% off gifts for mom. Terms apply. This is the Intelligence Matters Podcast with former acting director of the CIA, Michael Morrell. Sponsored by Raytheon.
1: I had a lot of mentors. I, I started out with the women, in, uh, and it was women then, in traditional disguise and learned what you need to know about how to cut a wig, how to fit a wig, how to do basic disguise changes, beards, mustaches. That training went very, very well and very easily. I think women take to some of that more readily than men because we've been disguising ourselves since we were probably 11 or 12. When you're talking about illusion and deception as it applies to disguise, we were out in Hollywood talking to the people who work with the the magic community. We were after that engineering piece. We were a, a technical office interested in performing some deceptions and illusions on the streets where our officers were working. If they could disappear people on the stage in Hollywood, we wanted to know how to do that if it's
2: okay, I'd like to ask you a few questions about your husband, Tony. Both you and Tony have been advocates for more transparency about the world of intelligence. Why do you think that's important?
1: People that go into CIA typically stay. They stay for long periods of time. The reason is once you get in there and see what the work is and see what the possibilities are and make a difference. I think what Tony and I have tried to do is open it up enough where Young people could consider maybe this kind of work, government work, as honorable work. We just like to encourage people to consider it as, a, as a career option. Jonna Mendez
2: was the chief of disguise at the Central Intelligence Agency. In her 27-year career at the agency, Jana worked undercover to develop the CIA's tools related to disguise and identity transformation. She served in numerous assignments overseas, in South Asia, in Southeast Asia, and in Europe. When she retired from the agency, Jana earned one of CIA's highest honors, the Intelligence Commendation Medal. Jana is currently a fine arts photographer, author, lecturer, and consultant on intelligence matters. She and her late husband, former CIA officer Tony Mendez, wrote two books together Spy Dust and the Moscow Rules, which was just released two weeks ago. I had a chance to sit down with Jana to discuss her and Tony's amazing work at the agency as well as her new book. We'll be right back with that discussion after a word from our exclusive sponsor, Raytheon. I'm Michael Morrell, and this is Intelligence Matters. A career at Raytheon is a career in innovation. Here, you'll advance technologies that make the world a safer place. Join our team today. Learn more. At com slash careers. Johnna, welcome to Intelligence Matters. It's an honor to have you on the show.
1: I think the honor is mine.
2: So you spent almost three decades at, at CIA. How were you first introduced to the agency? How did you end up there? And what was your first job?
1: Well, it was around about uh, clandestine entry I made into the CIA. I was... Working in Europe, I was working at Chase Manhattan Bank. I met a group of Americans who presented themselves as part of the really huge military presence that we had back in the day, back yeah, during the Cold, the Cold War. War. Yeah. There were I don't I don't know how many hundreds of thousands of Americans that were in Germany, but this group was part of them. I thought, and I got to know them over a period of years, and I started dating one, and I ended up marrying. This is my first husband in Switzerland. And I learned three days before the wedding that he actually worked for the CIA. He was not a department. So he told you three days
2: before the wedding?
1: Well, he was he was. Yeah.
2: How did you react to that?
1: (laughs) (laughs) You know, we were so young and uh, I was from Kansas, loving being in Europe. And I really didn't give it a lot of thought what the CIA was. I vaguely knew, but I didn't pay that much attention to it. That sounds ridiculous, but it's true.
2: So you marry him, and he's working for the CIA, and that's how you end up at the CIA?
1: Well, then we um, we came back to Washington, D.C. for a brief period of time, and like so many operational officers, we went straight back out. We went to the Far East, and there I was with no job. And so um, I ended up working for our office, for the CIA office, doing administrative stuff in the Far East. Then we came back home. He went back into school at uh, GW University. I needed a job again. This is the third time. Um, and I went to work at Langley, at, at CIA headquarters in Langley. And they hired me as a secretary. Um, at that time, they hired almost every female that crossed the threshold as a secretary. Yeah. It was – a. Yeah. Yeah. It was okay, though. We all knew that uh, it was probably the beginning of a career, but we, most of us didn't know what that career might look like.
2: So you started as a receptionist, but then you moved to become a photo operations officer. What is that? I've never even heard of that.
1: Well, it was a really great job. Um, I ended up working for the director of the Office of Technical Service. He was a man with about 1,000-person staff. He didn't need a secretary, so I was bored. I was going to go to the Smithsonian, and I sh- I showed him out the window, and you could see the castle. I said, "I'm g- I'm going to um, look into positions over there." He said, um, "Have you thought about taking some of our courses?" And in OTS, we were the we were the queue for CIA. We had everything from audio bugs to microdots to disguises. He said, "I know you like photography. Why don't you take some of our photo courses?" And so a week later, I was uh, down south of Washington, D.C., that little twin-engine plane with a harness for one person in the back. They'd taken the doors off thoughtfully. They gave me a 35-millimeter camera with a 1,000-millimeter lens. This is old school. Mm -hmm. That's a big, long, heavy lens. And it was called Airborne Platforms. Spent the day flying around, um, seeing if I could resolve small details with that moving lens in a moving plane spent the evening uh, in the dark room a place I love to be anyway and I thought okay uh, if this is the new the the new reality I will stay and that was the beginning of uh, becoming a photo operations officer so as a photo ops officer I traveled around the world training a lot of our assets agents some of our case officers in how to use not just commercially available available photography equipment but a lot of proprietary equipment that we had Um, special films, special techniques for shooting in the dark, practically. I see. So how did you wind up in disguise? Um, Somewhere in the middle of my career, I made a discovery that I could actually steer my career, that I could take charge of it and head in a new direction if I wanted to. I had been assigned to the um, subcontinent, for a summer, replacing someone who had to go back on home leave. And um, I had fallen in love with the culture of the country that we were in, just head over heels in love with it. I, I transitioned to there from black and white photography to color, which is uh, a much more difficult medium. In the dark room, doesn't matter so much in the camera, but in the dark room, it's very touchy. I came back from that temporary assignment and talked to our career person in my office and said, I'd like an assignment out there. I'd really like to work out there. On every this level is South Asia. South Asia. On every level it was it was interesting to me. The work was very interesting. We had access to amazing amounts of information that the CIA was interested in. And my career officer said there are there are no photo operations officer jobs available for the next three or four years. But there is a disguise job coming up in two years. So I went and talked to disguise and said I want to become a disguise officer. And it was full-time training, two years. And off I went. That was, that was the transition. Yeah, it is one of the great things about the place that
2: you can transition your career like that. It really is. There is this large internal labor market where people can move around and learn new things. It's really a remarkable aspect of, of working there. How did you learn the craft of disguise? How long did it take? Did you have mentors how did that work?
1: That's a big question with a with probably a wordy answer. I went in kind of um, stone cold. I didn't know about disguise. I had seen some things that we that we had done in one of my assignments. An officer had come in when I was working for it at chief of station. An officer had come in. He sat down on a sofa, talked to me for a few minutes, went in to visit the boss, and left. And I discovered it was an African American officer. And at the time, I thought. It's interesting because the country we were in, we hadn't really deployed that many African-American officers. Turns out he wasn't an African-American officer. He was, he was a disguise officer who was showing our chief of station um, a new capability that we had to change ethnicities to go from, from one to the other. I had a lot of mentors. I, I started out with the women, in, uh, and it was women then, in traditional disguise and learned what you need to know about how to cut a wig, how to fit a wig, how to do basic disguise changes, beards, mustaches, all the things that you think of stereotypically when you think of disguise. That training went very, very well and very easily. I think women take to some of that more readily than men because we've been disguising ourselves since we were probably 11 or 12. But then we moved into the area of advanced disguise, which was just coming online at the time. And that was involved with more things like sculpting, um, working in real laboratories, understanding the materials. Um, We ended up making partial masks, full face masks, prostheses, um, fake ears, all kinds of things. That's the training that took the most time, was the most difficult, but in the end was the most rewarding. So, John, let's kind of go through the fundamentals
2: of disguise. Whom would you disguise? Was it just CIA officers? Was it recruited agents? Was it both? What's the purpose? Um, what are you trying to accomplish? Can you talk about that a little bit?
1: Um, the answer basically is we disguised any intelligence um, officer or asset who had a need either for deniability possibly for personal safety reasons in order to be able to step away from a surveillance situation there were lots of situations where disguise was the obvious remedy we had established a requirement definition process where Case officers would I don't know they would maybe they would watch Mission Impossible on on Saturday night and they'd come in the morning, morning and say I need a disguise so we would we would sit down with our officers and say what is the scenario what are, what are you trying to accomplish and sometimes they didn't need a disguise at all well, sometimes we'd send them off to another part of our office but when they did need a disguise then we had to dis- dis- decide which level of disguise we were working with some officers in embassies around the world some intelligence officers. Are the first responders, if we have a walk-in to the embassy Mm -hmm. that says, I want to speak to someone, an intelligence officer, I have information. There's a protocol in those embassies. It's usually an intelligence officer that steps forward. Uh, It quickly became apparent when terrorism started raising its head that those officers needed protection. When they're walking down and meeting with you don't know who and you don't really understand initially what their intent is, So we used with them what we would call light disguise. It was not finely fitted or finely tuned, but it was enough to conceal who they were. It was enough to conceal who they were when they walked out of the embassy at the end of the day. And somebody would not follow them home, for instance, and see where their house was and see where their family lived and, and, and set them up for something untoward. So that was one way that we would use the disguise, Case officer would come in and say, "I'm meeting with an asset in a denied area a really difficult area to work in. I cannot be recognized it's life and death sometimes in Moscow. it was life and death almost always. I need uh, a way that I can be face to face with that officer and not compromise him, not compromise the, the agent, operation the agent, yeah. yeah and and so we would disguise our officers um with whatever level of disguise they needed, just something that would would get them through that situation. We had moments, uh, I'm thinking of one myself, where I was meeting in a foreign country in a hotel with a very high-level political figure in that country who would be easily recognized, and he was working for us. My job was to disguise him so that he could quickly step into a car, lean down, put on this disguise, sit up in the car, and no casual observers, no law enforcement officials, no one was going to recognize who he was while he was having that meeting. So it was a very broad uh, palette that we were working with, and it just depended on the circumstances of the operation.
2: Were men or women better at pulling off disguises, or was there no difference?
1: There were issues on each side. Um, our female officers were much more accepting of disguise materials they were much more comfortable wearing them the issue could be uh, that usually when we finished with you you didn't necessarily look better you looked different but it wasn't always pretty and if you take you know professional women who who pride themselves on on how they appear some of them had to swallow deep when they left our office with their disguised materials, on the other hand, some men many men. If Tony Mendez was here, he would say a lot of men don't particularly want to put on a wig and a mustache. they just don't
2: don't feel comfortable
1: they they don't feel comfortable, and if they're military people, they're even less comfortable and We used to laugh about the threat of having a United States Marine walk in our office. And we had to disguise him. So our job with the men was a little more extensive than with the women. We would design a disguise. We would fit it for them. We would make sure that it was comfortable. But it couldn't stop there because they would walk out of the the office with their disguise. And we weren't sure that they would ever actually put it on. Mm -hmm. So as as the last step, we added in um, a final exercise where they put everything on. And we would send them to the cafeteria at the agency. We'd send them down to go have lunch with everyone who knew them, their boss, their 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 peers, their subordinates. Everybody was there. And that could be a very um, a kind of come to Jesus moment when they discovered that nobody paid any attention. Nobody really cared. After a couple of episodes like that, we thought they, they might, if they needed it, they would probably put it on. So,
2: Janet, beyond appearance, did you also coach people on how they walk, their mannerisms? Was that part of what you did?
1: That was part of it. Uh, it's more—it's—it's it's more a part of it than most people would imagine, because the oval, the oval um, um, facial features are just a piece of of who you are. I have friends who've always told me that I had a unique walk. Uh, they used to kind of smile when they said that. I don't know what they're talking about, but I do know that if I put on a wig and 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 change my change my outfit, they still know it's me because they see me coming with this this walk. So part of programming somebody for a disguise, when you'd get them into your disguise room, you would examine, you know, sh- you know, do you have any unique characteristics? Are there things that people call out about you? Do you have mannerisms that you're aware of? Or we'd watch them all through this to see if we could see mannerisms that they might not know about. We would actually have them walk. We would talk to them for a while. We're evaluating them the whole time. Uh, we would ask people things like, do you have any distinguishing characteristics? And they would say, no, no, I don't no." And they'd be sitting there with some huge birthmark on their neck or, you know, tattoos up one arm or so we would make notes and, um, and then there are behavioral um, aspects of it. Depending on where you're going, there are there are things that um, maybe you want to avoid doing, or you might want to change how you do them. Are they typical American behaviors that you have to hide,
2: or is you know, re- is it really individual?
1: It's both. Uh, the individual things we tried to pick up in our labs while we're putting together the disguise kit. The behavioral. Self-awareness was really all we could do with that. But we would talk to them about why is it if you go, say, to France that they can always spot the Americans and they can. They can see groups of us. They can see a couple of us. Uh, I just went and took my son, Uh, his friend. They got targeted for pickpocketing. They got targeted because they were obviously American So you you think about what is it that they see that we don't see, and it's, oh, it's a bunch of small things. First of all, we show up usually in brand-new bright white sneakers that have never even been out of the shoebox because you bought them for the trip that you're going on. Uh, People that wear baseball hats should be aware that there aren't that many other baseball hats around. We are sloppy by most European standards. We'll use Europe as as a backdrop here. They think we're sloppy. We show up in in sweatshirts and track suits. They are pretty pretty well turned out. The women are especially well turned out. But they see us. They think we are loud. We are loud. We make way more noise than they do. You know, things like you go in a movie theater and you, you move down the row. They're facing you when they move by you. We are facing the screen when we move by them, which they consider terribly rude. And so they, they notice it. It's not a small thing. They, It's even in a darkened theater. They go, hmm, that's, not, that's not one of us. We don't do that. Mm-hmm. Lots of, from the way you eat to the way you smoke to the, um, just your, your general posture. We slump. We lean on things. If there's a, if you're in an elevator and there's one of those rails that goes around, we're hanging onto that rail like we're going to fall over. If there's a, if there's a place where you can put your elbow, we'll, we'll lean on that. And even if there's nothing around us, Americans do this thing where we stand on one foot, all the weight on one foot, and the hip is kind of out. They don't do that. They just stand straight. You know, their mothers this told them. This is all
2: part of stand up straight. This is all part of making them blend in.
1: Yeah, it's bits and pieces.
2: We're going to take a quick break to hear from our sponsor. Then we'll be right back with more of our discussion with John and Mendez. Do you hear that? That's the sound of the world changing, of networks connecting, enemies evolving. You can't slow it down. You can't avoid it. You can't stop it. But you can stay a step ahead. Every day, Raytheon engineers are innovating, modernizing, delivering trusted, innovative solutions that protect people, information, and infrastructure. So as our world changes, we can make it a safer place. John, a couple more questions. Questions about disguise. Do you consider it an art, a science, a little of both?
1: There is a science behind it. Uh, we have people who are who have chemistry backgrounds who evaluate materials for us, who actually invent materials for us. If you're talking about mask technology, for instance, we we started out modeling what Hollywood did, which was stunt double latex masks. And we used them for some situations, but they were uncomfortable. They didn't breathe. If you were in a climate with any humidity, they were suffocating. So we went off chasing other materials that would animate more, that, that were breathable, that were easy on, easy off. So there is a technological aspect to it. The same with hair goods. Uh, we like to use real hair, but that's a problem, especially if there's humidity. So then we use, uh, use Kanekalon and things like that. And then there's a problem. Security-wise, because if you look at it with infrared, it looks like a glowing um, uh, snow cone on your head. We were always chasing down those kinds of things. On the other hand, we had a couple of officers who were simply magic at putting disguise materials together, at changing the way people look, at applying the materials and of, of thinking up new ways to go about disguise. And, and that's, um, the the... that's the art of it. That's the art of it. Yeah, it's a big part of it.
2: So I've heard you make a distinction between disguise and illusion and deception. What are the nuances there?
1: Um, when you're talking about illusion and deception as it applies to disguise, we were out in Hollywood back behind the scenery, behind the performances, um, whether it was on stage or on film, talking to the people who work with the, the magic community, the people that that not only invent the, the deceptions and illusions that we see on stage in Hollywood, but who actually build them. There's an engineering piece to that. We were after that engineering piece. We were a, a technical office interested in performing some deceptions and illusions on the streets where our officers were working. If they could disappear people on the stage in Hollywood, we wanted to know how to do that. We had a few people we wanted to disappear or reappear on the streets in, in, in Moscow. So the book gets into this in some detail that really hasn't been explored previously. At this, We, we never could explore it until now about how we took those techniques Mm -hmm. and applied them. And in in this book, we're talking about how we applied them in Moscow, which was the toughest scenario that we were up against during the Cold War.
2: So you're not going to like this question because I know you're modest, but what made you so good at what you did? You know, was it an artistic eye? Was it a spark of creativity? Was it sense of daring, what would you pinpoint as your success in this field? Why were you so good
1: at this? No one has ever asked me that question before. If I was uh, good, it's because I was surrounded by people who were better, who were so talented, Uh, people who were artists, people who had spent their entire lives in one form or another doing this kind of work people who were generous with their knowledge when I came in and shared it without thinking twice about it. Uh, There were a lot of artists in the area where I worked. They're very difficult to manage, I would tell you. It's not your normal group of uh, uh, government bureaucrats in any of these offices that I worked in. The really, really good ones were amazing. Even after they retired, they continued using some of those skills that they have. And there, there is one in particular who, who works today with uh, prostheses for people who are injured, people who, who have been horribly disfigured by some sort of a scenario. And he can help put them back together. He can help make them whole again using a lot of the materials, a lot of the techniques that we used in our, uh, in our disguise labs. So it was a great, a great group of people who took me in. Put their arms around me.
2: John, if it's okay, I'd like to ask you a few questions about your husband, Tony. Sure. Who, for my listeners who don't know, passed away in January. I'm very sorry. How did you meet Tony?
1: Wow. Well, I had known Tony for so long that I almost forgot when I met him. But when pressed, uh, it was a Christmas party. It was in the Far East. It was an OTS Christmas party. Our chemists had invented a new punch that year. <laughs> we were on the top floor of an embassy. Somebody introduced me to Tony Mendez and um I wandered off and he went out to go home and fell down the steps at the embassy. That was the first time I ever met Tony Mendez. That was a
2: special punch?
1: It was uh it was a punch that was outlawed. They were never they had to give up the recipe and <sighs> they were never allowed to make it again. It's in one of our books. It was, really funny.
2: Tony once wrote, the best spy is an actor. Do you agree with that?
1: Um, In some situations, I don't think you always have to be an actor. But I think our best case officers, and you, I don't know, you might know a little something about this. I think our best case officers have personalities that we, we search for. They have interpersonal skills. They are too. A man, they are people that you want to get to know better. Um, We used to say if they weren't working for us, my God, what would they be doing? But they were working for us. They were going out, finding the people who had the information, recruiting them, developing them, and then at a certain point asking them to work for us. I thought it was it was the, the the gutsiest job in the world, a job that I knew I could never do. I had such admiration for our case officers.
2: must be extraordinarily difficult to sit across the table and try to convince somebody to commit espionage against their own country.
1: I, I always flipped that around and said to myself, what would it take for someone who I considered a friend to sit down over a drink and say, you know what, I'd like you to work for my country, and betray yours. Right. I can't think of how they could get me to do that.
2: So your new book is written with Tony, The yes. Moscow Rules, covers your time as operations officers in Moscow. What was, that, what was that time period like?
1: You know, when we went to Moscow, we were in and out. Neither one of us was ever actually assigned, not a full, straight-up assignment like the CIA does. We were there TDY, temporary duty. Uh, something would come up, an idea would come up. They would need some help. They would, they would, they would send for disguise officers. We were, we, we were there a lot. But like in a lot of operational scenarios, um, as technical officers, we tended not to work in the country we were assigned to. So when I was in the Far East, the work that we did was outside of the country we lived in. Uh, and that's kind of how we, how we managed the Moscow account.
2: You talk in the book about. How important it is to always listen to your gut. Sounds like a good rule. Sounds like a key, key rule. Did some officers have a better gut than others in your experience?
1: I don't know that, that I can broadly apply that and, and say yes and no. I'm, I'm, I'm pretty sure that there were degrees of this awareness. That was one of the Moscow rules, listen to your gut. and And the subtext of that rule, I always thought had to do with aborting an operation, mm. with not being uh, put off by saying this simply doesn't feel right and shutting it down uh, without any evidence that you could present to your boss. The fact was you didn't need any evidence. You could go back to your office and say, I didn't go. It Something, something wasn't right there because – if you go, if you go against your gut, if you go and if it is off and if it is wrong, there's somebody's life in the balance. Right. They will arrest. And typically in Moscow, they will execute the asset that works for you.
2: So, John, you and Tony helped with many of the exhibits at the new spy museum that just opened here in Washington. It's a departure from its Previous incarnation with a much broader look at intelligence and spycraft. What do you like best about the new museum?
1: Um, there's not much that I don't like. It's a it's a purpose built building that is simply architecturally stunning. It's it's a gorgeous gorgeous building with all kinds of transparencies. There's a there's a transparent veil, a glass veil. That overhangs what is a black box, and inside of that box, we've been we have the room, and we have the luxury because it took five years to put this new museum together. To very thoughtful, ex- thoughtfully explore some areas that in the first spy museum, we presented, but you couldn't go into it necessarily in any depth. In this museum, you can sit down, and interact with a lot of the exhibits. There must be more computer screens in in this museum than there are in most schools. You can play games. You can look at history. You can go to Abbottabad with, um, with you, and you can red team what the intelligence officers were having to grapple with and present to the White House. You can watch as information comes in about, is it Osama bin Laden in there? Well, here's a piece of information that would make you think it's him. Here's another one that uh, would raise questions. And you try and imagine being the analyst putting together these pieces, knitting it into a, a piece of intelligence that you can take to the White House, to the president, and say this is, this is the best that we've got and then watch them grapple with. I think it was a 60 percent chance. I think
2: the president, if he were, to, were here, would tell you he was 50-50 at the end of the day.
1: Wow. And then try to imagine being the president. Put you to pull the trigger or not? Right. It takes what was just, uh, you know, the headlines in the newspaper, and it takes you into the moment and everything that was involved. It's a fascinating piece of work. And you can walk in and sit down at a computer screen and you can go through it. It's, it's excellent. So both you and Tony have been advocates for
2: more transparency about the world of intelligence. Why do you think that's important?
1: Um, you know, a lot of people think of working at the, at Langley as a, as a, a working with a family. And they think of um, their work as a calling. People that go into CIA typically stay. They stay for long periods of time. They don't, hop around different jobs. The reason is once you get in there and see what the work is and see what the possibilities are and understand that you can participate and make a difference, actually help make a difference. And sometimes you can read the newspaper the next day and know that you made a difference. It's addicting. Tony always said that working at the CIA was like drinking from a fire hose and that retiring was like jumping from a moving train. Yeah. And in our, in our office, retirement, the average lifespan when I retired, the average lifespan for our guys, our men, was 18 months. Mm-hmm. They retired and died. They didn't have anything. It was their life. It was absolutely their life. I think what Tony and I have tried to do is open it up enough where young people could consider maybe – this kind of work, government work, as honorable work, they could consider it as a career, something positive that they would like uh, to be a part of. And I know that one officer uh, at Tony's Celebration of Life, he spoke, he talked about the number of young people that came in after the first of Tony's books, The Master of Disguise, after the publication of that book, and they said, we read that book and we would like to be part of this. You want to join the CIA? That was kind of our goal. Now I I know you have fifty thousand. CIA has fifty thousand applicants a year. They are not worried about getting to the bottom of of the barrel, but we just like to encourage people to consider it as Absolutely. a as a career option.
2: Absolutely, Janet. You've been terrific with your time. I just want to ask just a handful of more questions. Both you and Tony were. Consultants are consultants for a number of Hollywood treatments of the intelligence business. Which movie do you think best captures what the intelligence business is all about? I get asked this question all the time.
1: <laughs> you might run up against a, a problem with me because I don't watch that many movies, I don't watch that much TV. Um, we were amazed at what they did with Argo. And of course, like like a lot of movies, they kind of move, move a little right or, or a little left of of what is the the ground truth because they're making an entertainment, not a documentary. But actually, Argo gave a very a very compelling look at inside of an intelligence scenario. We always like the John le Carre books. We like Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy. We like those, that that whole series. Mm-hmm. We have always been entertained by James Bond, less so today. Doesn't seem, to, doesn't seem to age well. Tom Cruise is crazy fun to watch, but of course nothing is real in a, in a, in a, in a Tom Cruise movie. Mission Impossible, yeah.
2: yeah. So you met with then President George H.W. Bush in the Oval Office in disguise. How did that come about? What happened? Tell us about that.
1: You know, it was never my intention to take that material to the White House. Uh, It was a a new version of our mask technology. Initially, it made me an African-American man. It was stunning. Had gloves that came with it. Um, Showed it to my office director. He said, let's show the DCI, head of CIA. That was Bill Webster. He said, I love this. Let's show it to the president. I said, I can't. I can't go to the white house as a man. I I can't walk it. I can't talk. It It looks great, but you know, he said, make another one. So we did. And a young woman who worked for me basically gave me her face as a goodbye because she was leaving. And so we, um, we did take it to the white house. I went to Webster's house in true face, went into a restroom and put on this disguise his little dog hated me when I walked in. Dog barked like crazy. When I came out, the dog loved me. So there's that. <laughs> that's great. We went to the White House. I said, I have, I have no idea. I have no paperwork. I have nothing. He said, that's okay. And he was right. We went and stood outside of the Oval Office, and there was something going on, And we were, um, we were stuck in a big circle telling jokes. And I was trying very hard to laugh very hard in my mask. Then we went in. I was the first one to brief President Bush. I showed him some pictures of him wearing some traditional disguises when he was head of CIA. I said, so I'm going to show you now uh, the latest in disguise. He said, well, where is it? I said, I'm wearing it. So he looks harder. So I said, I'm going to take it off and show it to you. And he said, no, 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 don't. And he got up and he came around and he walked from behind. He looked. He went and he sat back down. He said, okay, take it off. So I peeled off my face. And John Sununu, who was sitting next to me to the left.
2: White House Chief of Staff at the time.
1: Almost fell out of his chair. Because the whole time I was talking, he was next. He was making the notes of what he was going to say to the president. He wasn't ready. Everybody else was kind of ready. Everybody else from the picture was amused. It was Brent Scowcroft, Bob Gates, John Sununu. I'm forgetting there's one other. Anyway, it was an interesting group of people. So I was the first one out of the office, and I was followed by the White House photographer who had been in the room and had been taking pictures. I guess they take pictures all the time. She came over and said, What did you do? What was that? And I said, I can't tell you. It's classified.
2: Jonathan, thank you so much for your time. You know, I, I really hope that there is a Tony and a, John and Mendez at CIA Today. But thank you for spending the time with us. Uh, the book is The Moscow Rules, and the authors are Tony and John and Mendez. Thank you. Thank you. That was John and Mendez. I'm Michael Morell. Please join us next week for another episode of Intelligence Matters.
0: This has been the Intelligence Matters Podcast with former acting director of the CIA, Michael Morrell, sponsored by Raytheon. The podcast is produced by Olivia Gassis, Jamie Benson, and Enya Guitart. If you haven't already, subscribe, rate, and review wherever you download podcasts. You can follow the show on Twitter at Intel Matters Pod and follow Michael at Michael J. Morrell. Intelligence Matters is a production of CBS News Radio.